Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want more information about Park Hills or any of the things that we're doing, parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. So a nice, light, easy subject today to uh, frame it. Let me begin in Exodus chapter 7. I'm going to read two different verses, and then Pastor Alex and I are just going to begin to unpack this very, very complicated idea. Chapter 7, verse 3, God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then you skip down to the end of chapter 7, verse 13. I should say near the end. And it says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so already, if you're paying attention, we've had this concept brought up a number of times. It will be brought up a number of times in the next week or so as we dive in and read a bunch of different passages in Exodus. However, In that very passage that I just read, you have two different things happening. One says, I will do it, and the other one says, and this happened, which already creates a bit of a problem for us, and we start to ask a big question. So we have a whole bunch of things to talk about, don't we? Yeah, we do. (laughs) Um, And and also, uh, there are three instances where it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sure. So do that really quick for us. Show us, you know, there's a number of verses that we're going to be talking about today Lay those out for us really quickly, you know, as, as best you can, and that'll start to begin to unpack the whole concept for us a little bit. Yeah, maybe you'll catch the question behind this quick run-through, but Exodus chapter 4 is the first mention where God makes a uh, prophetic promise. Verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do your miracles before Pharaoh, or all the miracles that are put in your power, but I will harden his heart. Yep. And then uh, chapter... 7 verse 3, but when I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs. Right. And then verse 13, 14, 22, all of that chapter are passive. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Right. And then uh, you get to 8, chapter 8, verse 15, and it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart, Pharaoh being the he here. And then from then on, there's multiple times where either – God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, or there's a passive and it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So even in chapter 8, in verse 19, there's a passive. In verse 32, there's Pharaoh hardening his heart. Jump over to 9. So this is now in the midst of the signs or what we call the plagues. 9 verse 7 is passive. Um, 9 verse 12, God hardens his heart. Uh, 9 34, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then the follow-up, verse 35, his heart was hardened, which could either be just a continuation. Then chapter 10, there's three instances of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 11, another instance of God. And then chapter 14, this is kind of the the post-plagues. There's three instances of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So if you're keeping count there, that's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 specific mentions of God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three mentions of Pharaoh hardening his own heart and six mentions of the passive, some of those are tied to one or the other. Like, for example, 935 comes right after 934. 
Right. So just so that the, the listener knows, and, and we will uh, make reference to these things, we are not working through material that Pastor Alex or I have written, but we've, we've got a number of articles that we're going to be using. So we'll introduce those to you as we go through it. Uh, the one that I'm going to primarily uh, focus on, there's two, but the, the biggest one for me was, it, it's called Divine Hardening in the Old Testament by Robert Chisholm. Uh, that's C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M. Um, and he wrote this in the, I believe in 95 was when this article was written in a, a major publication. 96 is when it was published. So, yeah. So he writes 26 pages on what to do with this. In the very beginning of the thing that he, uh, this article that he writes, he does just what you did. There are a ton of instances of God doing something Primarily, chapter 4 and 7 are the, the early ones, and then 9, 10, and 14 is when it gets really heavy, multiple verses, right? and those are all near the end of the story. And then he, he points out Pharaoh is the subject three times, and that, that happens near the middle of the story, and then C is sort of just someone is hardening someone's heart, whether it's passive or not, and there's you know those instances that you just mentioned as well. So he's doing the same thing that you just did, and I know that you've got another article that you're working through. So... When we're talking this through, I, I think the the thing that we would like to do today with you, and we, and we promised this a few weeks ago in the sermon, we're going to try to explain as best we can at least the argument of what's happening when we talk about the hardening of people's hearts in the Old Testament. Right, because if you didn't catch the question behind all this, the question is, who's responsible for Pharaoh's heart being hardened? And as you start to try to answer that question, you... There's, there's like, it's, you're walking into a minefield here. If you say, well, of course, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's a bad guy. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, then why do we have all these instances where it says God hardened Pharaoh, including the prophetic God telling him, telling Moses and Aaron before it even happens. But then you say, okay, well, it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then you start walking into the minefield of like, did God cause evil? Did sure. Because Pharaoh did a lot of bad things. And as a result of Pharaoh's hardened heart, the firstborn of all Egypt died. Sure. So did God cause all of that evil in Pharaoh's heart? And I, I don't think, I think those are great questions to ask. Uh, the answer isn't quite so cut and dry. No, it's not. And, and even in just that, you've pretty much unpacked the argument of dozens of major publications, articles, books, that have unpacked this idea as best they can. And they usually land on one side or the other, and those two sides, typically what we would call in the, the Christian circles, right, the Arminian view, which, to, you know, to unpack those two would be multiple podcasts in themselves. Right. So just take this as simply as I possibly can. Typically what the Arminian view is known as, or known for, is human free will having some type of power and Im implication in the divine uh, story that's being told, meaning one might lose their salvation, one might have, uh, they might pray and God listens to their prayer and almost opens up this idea of did God, you know, did God bow to them and do their wishes? So human free will actually moves to a level that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people, and rightfully so. And then that's the extreme version. And then the other extreme version is God is so in charge of everything that he determines everything to the point where some would say that he sort of takes over Pharaoh in almost a possession sort of way, hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then leaves for a second and lets Pharaoh go have the consequences of his actions. In which case, then God seems like a heartless dictator who's 
telling Pharaoh what to do and then holding Pharaoh accountable for the actions that Pharaoh does. Right. Also, the if you, you mentioned the extreme version of Arminians, like yep. we influence God, the extreme version of Calvinism is God has so ordered everything that we have absolutely no choice. Like we were, I actually took uh, a hist- an American history course at a public university and they were talking about as American history, you know, who came to America first? What did the pilgrims believe? And the professor who was not a believer just was talking about these new, these new Christians called Calvinists. And he described them this way. He said, you were born and you get a stamp. You're saved or you're not saved. You're going to heaven or you're not going to heaven. And anything that you do from then on out doesn't matter because you've got that stamp. And of course, people in the classroom kind of chuckled at that. Like, of course, that sounds absurd. I think uh, that's a, that's an extreme view, but that's kind of where these right. these two arguments can get pushed to sometimes. So Absolutely. we want to we want to kind of move in from those two positions. We don't want to mischaracterize either position in their extreme view. Sure, but understanding kind of where where both of them are going to land and the tension that it's going to create, particularly in this passage. And you bring up a great point right there. Typically, when we're talking about these two positions. Most of the time, it's actually being fed to us from someone who doesn't believe either of them are true. Mm-hmm. Whether it's public school or the, the media or somebody else, they will say words, deterministic or free will, and they'll just kind of throw those things around as if it's not a big deal. And they're not even a part of the discussion in theology, which I think is a really important discussion for us because if, if God doesn't listen to us, then what's the point of praying? That would be the question that you know right. a Calvinist might ask an Arminian. Uh, or sorry, an Arminian might ask a Calvinist. And then on the flip side of that, a, a Calvinist would say to an Arminian, yeah, well, if God has you once and for all, and if multiple passages say that his spirit led you to him, how can you say that you're in charge of your own salvation, whether you're going to lose it or keep it? And those are valid questions and valid discussions to have in this. So we're not dealing with that today. What we're dealing with is strictly... <laughs> Good thing we're not dealing with Yeah, <laughs> right? But what we're dealing with is definitely Pharaoh's heart being hard. And the question that, that comes up often, and usually it comes from these two camps, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Was Pharaoh's heart hard in its own right beforehand? And finally, did God harden his heart? And you might say to me, the listener, as you're listening to this going, well, I'm reading it right here in English. It says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's kind of what we want to start to unpack. And so first, you know, we've got kind of six points that we're going to work through today uh, or six things to think about that we'll utilize these articles to sort of interact and go back and forth on. But the first thing I think to think about is it's really important here to think about who the players in this story are, right? God is the chief player in the book of Exodus. So I get frustrated when I watch, you know, remember the Bible on History Channel? Yeah, I never watched it. Okay, that. great. Good for you. Uh, I watched it and, you know, wanted to watch it with, with people. And God is, like, absent. It's just like Moses is a prophet walking around with a staff, and he, like, does magic things with the staff. And that's sort of how he's portrayed. God whispers, and there's little moments here. But you're like, he, he's not really the main character. In Exodus, there is no other main character. In fact, the story is God. It's about mm-hmm. God doing what God's going to do and, and accomplishing God's purposes. The next most important character is the second most important character in the Bible who's a human, and that's that's, that's Moses. Moses, yeah. Right? I mean, the first most important character is clearly Jesus. Yay! Yeah. Okay, we got it. Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> Glad I got that one right. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> right? Uh, and, and I think Paul follows pretty closely behind those two. If we're going to just deal with, with 
words that are used in the Bible, how often the character is talked about, and the the esteem that the character is given, both by God and by the people that, that are involved with that individual. So we've got God, we've got Moses, and then right below that in this story, specifically the first part of Exodus here, Pharaoh is really high up, more so even than his people. And that's part of what people struggle with, with the whole hardening of the heart thing is, his, his people are suffering because of his hard heart. This doesn't seem fair. And that's one of the questions that we struggle with and, and understandable. And we'll kind of unpack a little bit of that as we go, but you've got Pharaoh, you've got Egypt, his people. That's, that's the, you know, the fourth major character in this. And then finally the Israelites are sort of hovering in the background and they're going to move into the foreground in chapter 12 as they, you know, are freed of the, the plague of the firstborn, move across the Red Sea and approach God himself and moving up to chapter 19, they become sort of the main character of that section, and then they don't do so well, and then Moses moves back to the foreground, you know, in the most important way. So those players, it matters kind of who's in charge of who and what and how this works out, but a lot of times we just forget that, and we just freak out about this. So so starting with that, like, what we're really talking about here is the interaction between God, Moses, and Pharaoh, and specifically God's interaction with Pharaoh. Yeah, and I think Pharaoh also is a stand-in for Egyptian mythology. Yes. Right. Like he, it's not just some, he's not just some random guy. And I think that's a theme throughout this discussion is Pharaoh's not just some random guy. Right. God didn't just walk down the street and be like, you know what? I need to make an example. I need to free my people. Uh, That dude, grab him. We'll just, we'll try him out. Like Pharaoh's specifically in his position. He's, he's a leader, sees himself as deity and sees himself as, the deity on earth that represents all of the Egyptian mythology, all of their deities, sure. all of their beliefs. So you're, you're getting this like Yahweh versus Egyptian mythology right. tension. Yep. And Pharaoh's just the guy that represents it. Absolutely. So that's number one. The players in the story are really important, and so you need to keep those straight, and we'll do our best to kind of keep them straight. We'll, we'll interact with all of those different players and characters at different points. Because we're going to have some questions that we're going to deal with as we go through it. The second thing that I think is important is the facts of what actually happens. And if God says something is going to happen, it, it happens. There's only a couple times in Scripture where God says this is what's going to happen, and then it doesn't. And the only reason why it doesn't is because God chooses to relent and not do what he said he was going to do. We're going to have one of those in a couple chapters here, right, where God's going to say, I'm going to do this to my people, and Moses intercedes on their behalf, and it's a verse that drives a lot of us crazy. I'm sure we'll talk about it in the podcast of the heart, you know, the easiest way to translate it is God repented. Yeah, God repented. And everyone goes, what does that mean? Like, how does God change his mind? Especially when you have other passages that say God doesn't change his mind. And yeah. you go, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. In fact, I think I asked you a question about that in your, uh, in your, yeah. your, um, not doctrinal dissertation. What, a, um, yeah, ordination, ordination yeah. council. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Really helpful. I'm wrestling with that myself. I I had to write a paper on it once, and I'm like, man, this is tough. And and there's questions that are worth asking on all of those fronts. The other one that I can think of right off the top of my head is the Ninevites. You know, God says, he sends a prophet and says, this is what's going to happen. Now, it does happen 100 years later, so it's not that God relented or changed his mind or anything, but they repented and God responded to their repentance, which is beautiful. I also would, I hold God's sovereignty very highly, so... What I'm trying to say here is God works things together to accomplish his purposes. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. And even if he doesn't do it, there's another thing that we're supposed to be wrestling with there, I think, as to how this plays out. 
So the facts, so the players of this story are, are what I just share with you. The facts are God is working things together to accomplish his purposes. That's really the main point of this entire section, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. Third, and I think this is important for us, you know, in, in modern day 21st century America, free will is a question that you and I struggle with more often than probably the original readers would have struggled with. And when I think about free will and even the discussion between Arminianism and Calvinism, we, we argue about things that most readers, especially from a Jewish perspective, don't even ask those questions. They don't care. Right. Right. Imagine you just got freed from the Egyptians and on your way out, you're like, well, what was Pharaoh's free will in this situation? <laughs> Right. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I don't I don't think Chris and I are sitting here like saying, Don't ask those questions. Sure. But I think sometimes when we start reading scripture, we get so focused on some of those minutiae that we miss the point of the story or what's trying to be communicated in the whole overarching meta narrative of scripture. And then we create theological systems out of those. Right. Yeah. It's, I wonder if we're, we're, that would cause us to miss God as the player in Pharaoh's heart and in the, the story of the Exodus. No, totally. So some of these articles that we, you know, we said we we're going to talk about, that we're going to spend a little time here kind of unpacking some of the things that people are discussing. So the fact, first of all, that the verbs that are used typically dealing with hardening are either in an active construction or a passive construction. So we didn't, we, I don't know if we've ever talked about this in the podcast and we're trying not to be super boring, but you do need to know the difference. If I said, Rob kicked a ball, Rob actively is doing something and the ball is the object that then moves because Rob kicked it. Yeah, we call that subject and direct object. Sure. And that's an active verb, right? It, yep. Someone kicking something, they're doing something the, that causes the action The to subject happen. acted upon yes. the object. Now, if Rob kicked the ball and it got into the stands and someone in the stands threw the ball back, now there's a new action. Yep. But if that ball hits Rob in the face, that's a passive action. <laughs> Rob didn't do anything. The ball hits him in the face. And so now Rob has been hit in the head with the ball. And you'll even notice right. the change of verb there, has been hit, right, or was hit with the ball. And we, we do this in English all the time without even realizing we're talking about it, right? But if you're sitting in an office and all of a sudden a door opens, and there's no one behind it. That freaks us out a little bit. Yeah, the door doors can't open on their own. So then that's a passive movement of a door, and we're going. Oh, this doesn't make any sense to me. So when we're talking about this in this particular passage, it's important for us to look at the verbs that are being used and and why. And we don't we're not qualified to go super deep into this, but our articles that we have kind of help us do this. Some of the things that are happening in these passages when we read about Pharaoh's heart being hard, that is a passive meaning. Something is happening. Either Pharaoh's heart is hard already, or somebody else is doing something to Pharaoh's heart to make it hard. Right. And the, and the key of the grammatical structure is that the con if the context will tell you who the actor is, yes. because in a passive sentence, there the subject is not the one acting upon the verb. Right. Rob was hit by the ball. Right. He didn't do the action. Something else did, and sometimes. The, the context is pretty clear, like from the previous sentence, we saw who the actor was, but sometimes it's not quite so clear. And I think also what's interesting about this is that, um, and I'm, I'm reading from Greg Beale's um, article, 
It's got a long name. An yeah. exegetical and theological consideration of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 4 through 14 and Romans 9, <laughs> um, in case you want to look it up. Right. Uh, there are actually three terms for hardening. It's not yes. all the same word, which I think is super interesting. Very. Because they all get translated and kind of lumped into the same discussion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's right. I think they're synonyms. But there, there's three di- three different words. Uh one having the idea of, of being strong, uh, one word having the idea of being heavy, yep. and one having the idea of being difficult. Well, and the interesting thing about the heavy word is that's already been used in Exodus. Yeah. So, and you, you actually see that in the verse right before. In chapter 6, verse 30, it says, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am uncircumcised lips. That uncircumcised concept a little bit earlier in the story actually was saying, My lips are heavy, is what it means. They just yeah. don't work correctly. They don't. There's something wrong with it. So if we're talking about heaviness or we're talking about obstinance or we're talking about something else that's going on, the idea is that the heart doesn't work. It's, it's arrogant, right? And I think when we hear hard-hearted, we typically think cruel, right, or some type of uh, overly negative view of it. And that's one of the things that Chisholm points out in his article is just that the hardness of the heart, a lot of times for us, we talk about hard-hearted people as just being mean. And to the Israelite, when they're reading this, that, that doesn't mean this at all. It right. just means that the heart isn't working the way that you'd expect the heart to work. Right, and I, I kind of love the nuance of like an unwilling to change heart. Right, And that's what we see right. um, Pharaoh constantly doing is there's a call to change to do something different, and the hardness of his heart is I am unwilling to listen and unwilling to change, even when his own advisors in the middle of the ten signs are like, "Hey, listen, you, you gotta you gotta quit doing this because this is terrible for us." Mm-hmm. Unwilling to change. So, the article that I'm using more than not, and, and I'm going to switch in a second to another article, but he, he comes up with three big conclusions to draw from this passage, and what he says ultimately is: first, from the outset, Pharaoh is obstinate. There, there's no question that this individual is obstinate. He just, and part part of what you brought up earlier is that's why, because he's the agent of the Egyptian religious politico view. You know, right. everything that's tied to this, like we can't possibly understand this because we live in a, a fairly sec, you know, a secular government. And even though you really aren't going to get voted into office if you don't say you believe in God in some way, right? Yeah. Our nation is based on, on more of a secular system, whereas in Egypt, they would have never blend, like all those things blended together. Right. And, and we just had this conversation actually with the students the other night because we were talking about the Pharisees. For so much of history, and it's certainly during this time, but, but also during Jesus' time, the political leaders were also the religious leaders. We have this idea called separation of church and state, and we're like, you, like religion and politics should never like touch each other, so much so that our you know, as a church, we don't pay taxes because that would be, you know, the the government controlling us or whatever. Uh, but it, like take Jesus' day, the Pharisees were both the political and religious leaders, which meant if they made a law, it was both a government and a religious law. And that's yep. why Jesus has so much tension with these guys because they make a law that might, you know, because we, we were doing this about the, the parable about uh, when the Pharisees we're getting on Jesus' disciples for eating with unwashed hands. Mm-hmm. They made a law, and they called it the tradition of the elders, but that had the force of religious law. 
And Jesus is like, listen, that really doesn't matter. What matters not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth. Mm-hmm. Take that all the way back to here with Pharaoh. Any rule, decision, idea, thought he creates is both governmentally enforceable, but tied to their religion. To, right. to mess it up or to do it wrong was putting your eternal destiny at stake. And, and it's hard for us to understand that, but that's who Pharaoh was. So any slip up, any loss of power or influence or loss of slaves or loss of, you know, his uh, title was not just like, oh, he's not a very good leader, but it's he's not a very good God. Right. And so that, that tension is, is deeply embedded in his heart. And I think that when we start talking about the hardness of his heart, like that's the kind of questions he's wrestling with. Totally. And, and that will never make sense to us. Right. Because if a political leader messes up in some way, we don't immediately assume that God has failed. Right. Which you see this in other faiths or branches of, even of our faith where the leader of the, of the faith might make a statement. I'm thinking here of like the Pope, for example, has made statements over the last couple of centuries that current popes can't possibly deny that those things are true. I'm thinking of like papal infallibility, for example. Mm-hmm. I think most popes, if we were to get them alone, quiet, like, okay, you can never make a mistake. They're like, oh, of course I make mistakes, but we've got this thing that was written in the books 600 years ago. I can't get away from it at this point. Like if I'm going to be the one that's going to kill that off, like there's no way. So there's things that are said or done that you're, you're tied to this and there's no way for you to get out of it. For Egypt, we're talking centuries and centuries and centuries of a system uh, politically, sociologically, religiously that are so interwoven that if if you just say, if, if there's one crack in the armor of Pharaoh here, the whole thing collapses. Yeah, and, and the thing is, for the Egyptians, it works. Like, they are totally. the military and economic power. Right. They've got the Nile. They have all the, you know, when, when there was a Pharaoh, where does everybody show up? They show up to Egypt. And so what does that do that, that because Egypt had food and it makes them super rich because anybody who needs food is yeah. coming to you and you're like, wait, I have all this food. Everybody wants it. What happens to the price it goes way up and now you are econ- the economic power, you're the political power because everybody's bowing to you, begging you for your food. And what can you do with power and economics? You can create a military. Right. And so for, for Egypt right now, it's working for them. Totally. I think that's, hopefully that's helpful to you. And if you think about it, you know, I'm trying to think of a, like a modern parallel. Think of the, the fear that some people have right now about losing precious freedoms, whether we're talking about gun rights or whether we're talking about something else. They're like, this is what makes us who we are, right? And so if you deny this, all of a sudden you deny a major part of the constitution or something else. And we've, we've lost really what makes us American. He's got more on the, on the hook than that. Oh yeah. Secondly, in, in this article, and I'm only going to do these first two here, and then I'm going to share the third one in a little bit on a different point that we're at. But remember, we're still talking here about free will is more our question than theirs. The second thing that's interesting is while Pharaoh does harden his own heart in a number of passages, Chisholm, and I'm sure Beals does the same, which is the article that you're quoting from, he, he does so, he hardens his own heart, but he's not the initiator. Right. That's, yeah. The very first thing that you see in the passages, whether we're talking about ch- chapter 4, verse 21, the one that you read earlier, God says, I'm going to harden his heart. Now, uh, in fairness, I would back away from that a little bit and say, Pharaoh has already shown himself to be a pretty messed up dude, right? 
and that's a biblical term, um, dude, he, he is starting in chapter one. He has already enslaved the Israelites, which also I would suggest puts a little bit more power in even him having to say no to the Israelites leaving. Like you're losing a workforce as well. Oh yeah. And you're the one that brought the workforce in. So you're telling me that now you're going to back down from having this huge workforce of people that you've enslaved. And secondly, when the birth rate started spiking, his move was not to, you know, be a, 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 you know, benevolent leader. His goal was to be a dictator who tried to kill off all of the babies in chapter one and chapter two. So then you, you read that and you go, this guy is already really, really, really bad. So then when God says in chapter four, I'm going to harden his heart and this, and, and I am, I'm fully aware that these are different Pharaohs, but the office of Pharaoh is what I'm talking about here. Right. This isn't like a four, every four years you have a new president come in. This is a, a family of decision makers getting passed down. It's kind of like the crown. If anybody's ever watched that show, right? There's the, there's a, Something that with that power that comes with it that you just like, I can't break away from this. So this Pharaoh is not going to back off of what his dad did or his grandpa did, however many Pharaohs down the road we are at this point. Right. You can't back away from this. Like you're stuck in this spot. So when it says he hardened his heart, Chiselman and Beale are, are right to say God actually is the one that initiates this. However, God's saying he's initiating something that's already been set in place before. Right. That goes back to the like Pharaoh's not a random dude. Exactly. Not just some random guy. Like this is a guy who is from a long line of systematic evil of just built into his culture in the way that he um, runs his government. Ultimate supreme power dictatorship. His dad or uncle or grandfather or whatever relative was totally fine killing babies and was not held accountable for that. And then he, at the very least, this current pharaoh, is enslaving the Hebrew people and we see his we see his real heart in chapter 5 where the hardening of the heart is actually not mentioned right. that term is not used but when Moses and Aaron go to him and say you know let us go verse 2 who is the lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go I do not know the lord and moreover I will not let Israel go they ask again and Pharaoh says in verse 5 behold the people of your land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foreman, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. Sure. And so we see that his his heart before right. God creates this exact action is already pretty pretty hard to start with. Right. Totally. And, and when you read the Lord there, that's Yahweh. Yeah. So what he's saying is you're bringing me a demand from a God that I don't know. Who's your God? I've got a bunch of gods. Mine are better. At least in his yeah. mind, that's what he's thinking. And I would, and, make, and I'm a god. And I would make the case that he probably had heard of Yahweh, maybe not necessarily by that name because that was the name sure. revealed. But when they say, "Hey, the God of the the Hebrews is coming," like he's enslaved these guys, he probably knows that they have their own gods. He's a polytheist. He's not like, "Oh, wait, there's only one God," and and I've not heard of that. I don't think. I think it's almost sarcastic. He's saying like, well, you know, if. Like as as the greatest insult, like and who are you? Right, I'm totally with you. And, and so back to the the point here: free will is more our concern than theirs. I think one of the other things that we're thinking about here, in in all of the articles that we read, is we struggle with free will because we think about it as God's just grabbing Dave off the street corner and he's going to make Dave do what Dave wants to do, and then evil's going to ensue. 
And I hope that you're hearing, we're making the case here, this isn't an arbitrary situation. This is a very specific situation, a very specific individual with a very specific purpose, position. There's never been a leader like him. Well, I can make the case there's been a few others in history, right? Sure. Like... Oh, you mean post-Pharaoh? Yeah, I'm saying... Oh, like, yeah, yeah. We, we were talking about it a little bit ago. Like, who are some of the other people that you'd, you'd go, oh, okay, I get it now. Uh, Hitler? That'd be one. Yeah. Uh, you could throw Stalin in there. There might be a, a guy named Putin. Yeah. The, might, <laughs> we, know, as of this morning when we're recording this, like, we're watching the news say, you know, he's, he's invading Ukraine, and we're like, we're going... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of understand what hard-hearted individuals look like. And, you know, I don't care about peace. I want to make what I want. So I'm going to do it. And so you read those things and you go, okay, these are individuals that are under unique circumstances with unique purposes and positions. If God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart here, or if Pharaoh's hardening his own heart, either side of that, uh, that Arminian Calvinist debate, Either way, it's not just for anybody on the street. This is a very specific individual with a very specific position in power, which then leads us really to the third point of Chisholm's article, which is the fourth thing that we're going to talk about, which is there's an Egyptian ceremony of heart weighing that's already involved. And what Chisholm says is this whole thing, God hardening heart, actually becomes an act of judgment against Pharaoh. Yeah. How does that play out? Yeah, so this was an idea introduced to me uh, back when I was college in college, and I just found it really compelling. Uh, you know, so like the backstory is Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, right? right? He grew up uh, being taught how to read and speak and write Egyptian, um, and he would have been taught their mythology. So he intimately knew what they believed, and there are some implications in the Pentateuch that Moses that we believe Moses wrote. Uh, I think that speak to that. So one of those that we've talked about on the podcast before is how he uses no Egyptian personal names in the Pentateuch because the Egyptians right. believe that the preservation of the name, Moses knowing he's writing a book that's going to be preserved, doesn't want to put their names in there. I think that's really cool. Really cool. Another one is this ceremony called the hardening of the heart. And if you're interested in more of this, there's an article on the Torah.com called Wayne Pharaoh's Heavy Heart. That kind of goes through, in, in Egyptian mythology, uh, the afterlife was achieved uh, based on your works. It was a very works-based mythology. And the idea was that they would, they, there's, and uh, in this article, it's great, there's, there's a picture of the actual Egyptian uh, paintings and hieroglyphs that they would uh, open the Book of the Dead and they would take your heart out because the heart was the center of emotions in that day, right? They didn't see the heart as the uh, heart or as a blood pumping muscle. They saw that as the center of who you were and they would weigh it against what they called the feather of truth. And so their God Anubis would put the scales, would put these on the scale. And if your heart was heavier or harder than the feather of truth, then their, um, their God, they're like, uh, dog-headed creature would eat your heart and send you into like eternal torment. But if your heart was lighter than the feather of truth, then you would be sent to you know the whatever their version of like the best afterlife was. Right. Um. And so, this phrase "hardness of heart" is not something that Moses invented. No, he's pulling it right out of Egyptian mythology here, and. 
the so the person the um anubis the one who sets up the scales and is doing this whole system and is weighing are you worthy are you not worthy um in egyptian mythology the pharaoh himself when he dies takes on Mm -hmm. the role of anubis and becomes anubis and so what moses is pointing out here uh and i think through you know through god's working and writing this is he's staring at Moses right in the face and saying, you think you're the one who's going to judge whether hearts are, are heavy or not? You're the one with the heaviest heart here. Right. You're the one who you, you think you're the God. You think you're infallible. You think you're doing everything right. I just want to point out to you, and I want to embarrass you in your whole mythology, and, and this is Moses writing, but really God speaking, the, I think the one of the big purposes purposes of the Exodus story being recorded here is to embarrass the Egyptian mythology and say, listen, you think you're the guy that's going to weigh hearts? You're, you actually have the hardest heart of all. Right. And we're going to see that play out over and over again. And the glory is not going to go to you in Egypt because of your fame and influence and power and military might. It's actually going to go to the God of the slaves. Yeah. Like there, he's the guy that's going to come out on top of the story. He's the one that's going to plunder you. And so um, it's just really cool. I think, Moses, knowing this Egyptian mythology through the Spirit's work, yep. is writing intentionally just 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 daggers into the heart of their mythology. Totally. Yeah, you think you're going to do this, Pharaoh? I, I got something for you. <laughs> Which, when you start to unpack all of these things, it starts to paint a little bit different picture for us than when we just read it at first, you know, at first glance. So we've already established Pharaoh has a unique position, unique power, the, the fact that the hardening of the heart idea that he would be judged, Pharaoh considers his father then to be his judge, right? Who's going to weigh his heart. And then if he succeeds, he takes over his father's position to weigh the next hearts. And and in all of this, if you think about it, what God is doing is, is attacking the Egyptian ethos in every possible way just by saying, I'm God. Right. And again, this is not an arbitrary, like, I got to find someone in Egypt. This is the pinnacle of power. Yep. In this day, eventually this this archetype turns into Babylon because Babylon becomes that ultimate yep. power. But then Babylon, just the ultimate power becomes Rome. Right. And then Rome, you know, all through history, we have these like archetypes of military power and might and all these nations that think like we are in control of the world because we're so powerful. And at this time, it's Egypt. So God just goes sure. for the top and he says, hey, you're, you're not even close. You're not even close to me. Totally. And it's, and he goes for the top and he also goes for the top because the top has his people. Yeah. So remember he is covenantally connected now because of Genesis 12 moving on to this people group. Now, none of this is by accident in my opinion or yours. Like all of this is totally intentional. If you think about it in the, in the world at, at this time, the only power that matters is Egypt. So then it's not a surprise that both the Israelites end up in Egypt or that God even would send them there. Do you remember? I mean, right. that's, that's how this all played out. Remember Joseph had these dreams and the stars and the, and the sheaves bowed down and all these weird things happened. And at the end of the day, he ends up in the world power as number two in command. And now generations later, they've forgotten all about Joseph. They have no idea what's going on. They just, they have a bunch of slaves. They're happy about that. And God is going to not only free his people, but he's going to work through Pharaoh's heart to also not only free his people, but to give the Israelites everything that they could ever want. All of the riches, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. So when I start to think through this and I go, okay, let's, 
if, if number four is the Egyptian ceremony of the heart weighing, number five is we care more about the mechanism of how this happens than the text actually says. And I don't know how to unpack this super well, so I'm gonna, you're going to help me out here. But when I think about it, we, we so often think about it this way. If, if, if God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, is he like, for lack of a better word, sort of possessing Pharaoh for a minute and taking over and saying, you know, you're going to do what I'm going to do here, and this is, this is the moment where I'm in charge of you. That has problems. There's a number of significant right. problems with that theologically. And it, and it starts to unpack a really negative idea that we don't want to go down. Secondly, if God is just grabbing a hold of his heart, so to speak, and just hardening that part of him, then like we said in the beginning of the podcast, if, if God is making Pharaoh on the hook for things that Pharaoh didn't do, that's also problematic. Now, please understand, I have no problem with any one of these scenarios. I, I trust God. I know that Yahweh is Yahweh. And if God did any one of those things to make it happen, I'm totally fine with it. The other thing that is a possibility, though, here is if you're reading the text close enough, if if the guy is already set up as the God of, of his country, he is the political leader and the sociological leader, like everything that's about Egypt is wrapped up in the Pharaoh. If God is going to ask things of Pharaoh that would be hard for Pharaoh to do, then God can set the tone in such a way, sort of set the deck, right, or the chessboard. You, you know, you get started with the, the, the game of chess and, and the person looks across the table at you and says, I don't care what you do, I'm going to win here. That's more terrifying to me than God, like, taking over. <laughs> you know, if, mm-hmm. if God can mm-hmm. say, I know all the things you're going to try to do, I know all the things you're going to try to say, all the ways you're going to try to get my people to stay under your thumb, I'm going to win this battle. And if it takes your heart being hard, I'm going to harden your heart. It doesn't necessarily even mean that he needs to, quote unquote, possess or, or grab onto a heart. He could even just say, I know all the steps it's going to take. These 10 plagues, every one of them as they unravel, you're going to get harder and harder of heart. And in that sense, God is still doing it without even having to take over Pharaoh. Right, right. And that's the circumstances viewpoint, right? Like God knows the circumstances that will make Pharaoh harden his own heart. So God puts those circumstances sure. in, in place. And then you could, you know, you could say, well, God hardened it by putting the circumstances in place that caused Pharaoh to do that himself. Right. Interesting viewpoint. I'm not really sure. I, I love that one. But I, I think it, it makes me go to the question of why does God want the credit here? Right. right? It is, it's, that's the one thing that's clear to me. Whether God is just setting things up so Pharaoh does it himself or God is, like you're saying, possessing, why does God want so much credit? In this in the story, he's God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. if, if you think about the whole story, God is is the one who deserves the glory, right? And and whether we're talking about world powers being of themselves, or whether they're being influenced by satanic forces or something like all these are possibilities. At the end of the day, the only person who deserves the glory is God, right? So if, if Pharaoh really believes that the, there are other gods that are telling him what to do, if Pharaoh believes himself to be a god, at the end of the day, that needs to crumble so that God can deserve, get the praise that he deserves. And, and secondarily, back to a point that you made way earlier that kind of just got swept under the rug in the midst of all the information we're throwing out. And, and, and we know this is a big podcast with lots of stuff going on. We're fully aware, and hopefully you're still with us at this point. <laughs> but there's, there's an element here of Israel needs to understand the power of their god. Right. Right? So even the whatever mechanism God uses here, the ultimate purposes for him are not just to free his people. 
It's to free his people. It's to give his people what they deserve, which is the the you know the the riches of of Egypt, and also that his people would honor him and give him the glory that he deserves because they're about to go through some really tough stuff even after they get out of Egypt, and so they've they've got to learn. I don't even want to go up against that guy. Look what he's capable right. of doing. Right, and I think that that just introduces this idea of of and this is a a a not Calvinist viewpoint. There's there's just this dance between understanding exactly what God is doing and what free will is doing. And there's there's kind of this this mystery there. And I, I think even though I don't agree with with all of uh Greg Beale's viewpoint, because he and he jumps to Romans, which I think is really cool. Right. Like he's uh, because Romans chapter nine mentions it, but even Romans one and two is talking about, you know, God like people rejected God, so he turned them over to their hearts and let right. them do what they want, and they they ended up with this depraved mind, and and then he gets into this discussion of Jews and Gentile, which it's if you if you start reading Romans like as a whole book over and over again, and I've been doing that lately, and just have been absolutely loving that. You see how much of mm-hmm. of Romans is this tension between like Jews and Gentiles, and and how they should exist side by side, and then you you read chapter two and chapter two is talking about like the the jews have the law but they they think they're better because they have the law but they don't follow it and in fact gentiles who don't have the law but in some way follow it are maybe even a little bit better than that and mm-hmm. and, and so you get this 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 dance this tension between okay uh how is god allowing free will to exist within his divine sovereignty and, right. and what's that tension and to me this is where i get hung up on on the calvinistic point of view is that I feel like Calvinism has to have like a perfect answer for everything. Mm-hmm. And I think intentionally here, there is tension. And I'm okay living in that tension because what that tension, I think, intentionally drives the believer to is an all-out trust and worship of God. Yep. And, and I, I think the Calvinist point would say the same thing, like God's perfectly figured everything out, which drives us to worship him. So I'm not saying that right. that they're not doing that, but I think that living in that tension, so you have this tension between, you know, uh, what is Pharaoh just doing this because God made him do it, but then why is Pharaoh culpable for totally. for, for doing what God made him do? And I think there's there's this tension there of like, yeah, Pharaoh's a really bad dude already. Right. And so God's just going to use that. But what God wants to tell his people is, listen, I didn't let you out of Egypt because they had a weak leader or because Moses was super good at talking or because, uh, you know, it just, it all made sense. And there was a nice little like treaty that happened, although God could have done that. I think what God's really trying to communicate here is, listen, you had no way of doing this yourself. And so I came in. And I worked against the greatest power, and you. And and then this is, this is the miracle of the Exodus, right? The miracle right. of the Exodus is not the, the the plagues or even the tenth right. plague. The miracle of the Exodus is that a slave nation yep. broke out from their captors without losing a single life of their own, and plundering them on their way out. Yep. And the entire major political power and military power was defeated without shooting a single shot. Yeah. So let's, let me do a quick review of our five things we've talked about so far, because I think this will sort of start to wrap it up and get us to our sixth, you know, th- which is right where you just left us, which is great. So remember who the players are in the story. God doesn't have to question who God is. God's fully aware. Moses knows who God is, and he trusts God at this point. Pharaoh needs to learn who God is. Egypt is going to learn who God is, and the Israelites are still on the fence, 
but they're going to figure it out over the next couple of chapters, which is really important. Number two, the facts is that God ultimately is working everything together to his purposes. Both sides of this argument, Arminian or Calvinist, would agree with that, that ultimately God's in control and God's going to do something. The question is, how does it get done? Number three, free will is more our question than it is theirs, and that's something that we don't like to always wrestle with, but I think it's a good question for us to wrestle with sometimes, just to let the text speak to us and let us think about it. Number four, there's an Egyptian ceremony of heart weighing that Moses is utilizing here by being led by the Spirit to create a space for people to realize you think your God is important, that your God is the God who's going to weigh the heart of Pharaoh. My God is God. There is no other God. He's the God that you're supposed to be looking to and following. And number five, we care more about mechanism in ways that the text doesn't necessarily. And and back to the point that I was making a little bit ago when you, you jumped in and really helped, I think, concrete some of that. My point is the text is, there's a lot there that that's open to suggestion. And of all the papers that I've read, so you, you know, you've got Beals, I've got Chisholm, and I've also got an article by T.D. T. Alexander, which is the commentary that I'm using as I go through Exodus. And I'm partly using that because it was written in 2017, so it's very new. Right. And your article was written in the late 90s. Minus, 80, 84, actually. Oh, so even older. So 84, minus in the mid-90s. And then every other article that I've looked at is like mid-90s to early 2000s. Right. So he's compiling all of that information and saying, here's what we need to think about. And so he has something called an excursus on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's just this long thing. And I'm not going to get into it a ton. I'm just leaving you there just so that you know it's there. There are theological issues with any one of these things. If, if Pharaoh is taken over by Yahweh, there's a theological issue there because so Yahweh is not powerful enough to do it without, without taking over. And then if, if Yahweh doesn't take over, oh, so you're telling me Yahweh can't take over. The text <laughs> doesn't have either one of those things. As a, they're all possibilities. Right. Which leads me to the sixth, and I, and I think this is really where we've left it and kind of the most important thing. When I read a text like this and it leaves me uncertain and I spend time reading scholars and there are amazing scholars who have debated these things for hundreds of years or thousands of years at this point and they don't agree and they're trying to argue their position as to why Calvinism is right or Arminianism is right or the Jewish version is right or whatever. If all of those things are, and, and they're being argued well, Using right. the text to make their arguments These are clear. people who love Jesus and love his word. Like, let's be clear about that. Totally. When they're arguing really compelling arguments from both sides or any of the sides, or they're creating a new side altogether that wasn't even considered yet, which is what Alexander kind of talks about in his commentary, is there's a number of these things that have just come out in the last few years that are pushing back on both Chisholm, Beale, and right. a couple of the other names that I, you know, Walt Kaiser is like, you know, Old Testament guru who wrote a book called Old Testament Ethics, and one of his points is God can't do evil. So why would God do? Why would God force Pharaoh to do something that's evil? That's not possible. Mm-hmm. So then that leaves him in this weird spot of like, what do I do with this? If if all of those things are being discussed and, and worked through, then I just step back in, in that situation and I go, this passage is about something else. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of both came to that conclusion. How would you word that? How is this, what is this passage about? I would say this is this passage is about, or why does God want the credit, right? That's that's what we talked about earlier. Why does God want the credit so much? Because he wants to show how powerful he is right. to the major world superpower so that his readers that are reading this 2,000 years after Jesus came can trust in him 
that he's working, even when sometimes things get harder, like Exodus chapter five, even sometimes when things start looking crazy, like the 10 signs, right? Like God, God has the power to do what he wants with world leaders. And sometimes though, you know, what he's going to do is going to look really good to us. And sometimes it's not, you know, Hitler had a lot of power and did a lot of terrible things. And so how do we wrestle with like, well, where was God in that? Did, Did God just, you know, and I think sometimes we start running down the, like, we have to explain everything and say, well, you know, the, he used it to cleanse the Jews and, you know, get a judgment on the Jews for rejecting him or all this kind of, and I, I just think that's, that's too much explanation. Sure. We're, we're going to this and trying to explain everything. Instead, we ought to live in the tension. And Chris, I'm interested to hear, like, how do you live with tension or how do you view when we have scripture and it's not completely clear, how do you wrestle with the tension of like, ah, there, there's something going on here, but I don't, I don't quite have all the answers, but there, there's something that I just can't explain. Like, yeah. And I'm way, I'm way more comfortable with that tension than I was. Right. When I first Mm -hmm. came out of youth group and moving into Bible college, I thought I had all the answers. My friends and I would stay up late discussing Calvinism until 2am and, you know, all convinced that we're totally right. And I've talked to great saints who are much farther along on the journey than I am. Uh, some of my mentors who have now passed, just I sat with them and asked them these very questions. What do you do with Pharaoh's hardening part? What do you do with the Calvinism Arminian, you know, Arminian debate? Like, what do you do with the discussions that are happening? And, and more often than not, I've had people say, I, I just, it taught me to trust God. Like, it just taught me to step back and go, I don't fully understand this. I don't know that I ever will. I believe that I can make really good arguments from the text. I can also show that the text leaves a lot to be desired. And when the text is leaving a lot to be desired, that it's God that gave us that. Mm-hmm. So I can step back and go, God, I don't need to have this all figured out. I trust you. And I, and ultimately I rest in your sovereignty. Yeah. I believe that you're in charge. I know that you're in charge and you prove that by saying you're going to harden a heart and the heart gets hard and your people get free and they plunder the Egyptians and you carry them across the Dead Sea and you bring them to the mountain that you said you would back in chapter three. Like everything about this whole story is coming together in this way already here in chapter seven where we're going, look at the power of God and what he's capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So what I do with the tension is I just, I go, I don't fully understand it. I can argue all sides of it. I'm going to leave that there. I'm going to have the fun conversations with the college students or the young adults or someone else who comes to me and says, what's going on with this passage? But God, I trust you. I rest in your sovereignty. Yeah. So, final thought. You need to do the same. Our world is very uncertain, right? And there's right. moments where we all look around and we just go, I don't, what's happening? And we freak out. And I'm not saying we don't do anything because it, the Israelites have to do stuff here or else they don't, they, they don't participate in this. Moses has to do things or he doesn't participate. So I'm not saying that humans just sit back and go, all right, God, you're in charge. You're going to do whatever you're going to do. But we need to learn to trust him. And trust him in such a way that we just say, God, I don't know what's going on. This whole world is full of craziness and difficulty and it's wild. But in the middle of that, I trust you and I know that you're good. I'm going to rest in your promises. Yeah. Amen to that. 